You're listening to the Sped Prep Academy podcast. Your host, Jennifer Hofferberg, is an award-winning veteran special educator who shares her experience, knowledge, and passion to help other special educators survive and thrive in this profession. Join her and other guests as they share tips and tricks of the trade for the ever-crazy, completely overwhelming, laugh-so-you-don't-cry profession of being a special education teacher. Hey there, welcome back to the SPED Prep Academy podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer, and this podcast was created to guide special educators in their journey to become amazing teachers. My goal is to provide you with the support and training you need to become a highly effective and successful special educator. If special education is your calling and you are in this for the long haul, then this is the place to be, and I'm going to be right by your side helping you learn everything you can about being a great special educator. If you're new around here, in addition to being a special educator, I am also extremely passionate about teaching other teachers how to effectively work with the teaching assistants or paraprofessionals who work in their department. Out of everything that we learn in college, it has been my experience that this is an area that is often forgotten about. We are not intentionally taught how to work with our staff, how to train them, how to support them, or what to look for when hiring them, and how to be a leader to them. Whether you are just starting out in this field and are struggling with how to supervise and train your staff, or if you've been working in your position for a while and you just need some advice for how to begin building a department into a true team, I can help. I've created a 10-step guide to begin creating a team culture with your staff, and you can get it for free at www.spedprepacademy.com team. It includes 10 easy-to-implement steps to learn how to build the team you've always dreamed of, And I can speak from experience when I say that these 10 steps completely transformed my leadership abilities just a few short years ago. I went from feeling frustrated and burned out and resentful of things like my parents coming to school late or being on their phones all the time or not being where they're scheduled to be, to being highly confident in my leadership skills, knowing how to clearly communicate with my staff and building relationships that aided in high retention rates and happy parents. And I want that for you as well. So again, just go to spedprepacademy.com slash team and get access to those 10 steps for free. So to follow up on last week's episode with Amanda Wilb, where we talked about the tips for running a resource room, I got some good feedback from listeners about how much they enjoyed that show because it really hit home as resource teachers themselves. So when I began to think about what this week's episode should be about, I realized that there is still so much to talk about when it comes to resource rooms so much that Amanda and I didn't hit on. So I want to keep on this topic for just a few more episodes. When you think about a resource room, there's really a whole lot that is in motion with them. Some of those things are the same for a self-contained classroom, and some of them aren't. So if you are a self-contained teacher, go ahead and keep listening because there are still some takeaways that you can definitely apply to your classroom. So this week will be part one of a three-part series on how to run a resource program. We're going to talk about how to set one up, how to schedule for it, and how to plan for the students who have resource services. I'm only going to focus on one aspect each week, and this week I want to explain what setting up a resource room looks like. When I was hired for my job, I was hired as a special educator, but my title on paper was IRC. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that I had no idea what IRC meant until the next school year. I guess I was too embarrassed to ask because I figured it was probably something that I should have known. But IRC stands for Interrelated Classroom. 
Now, I don't know if that is a common term for resource rooms or if it was just something that my district called it, but for a good 15 years or more, I was IRC. Eventually, through an audit, I'm sure, our special education director made us change titles to resource. And the reason for the change was this. IRC, because it had the word classroom in it, shouldn't be used because special education is a service, not a location. And I absolutely, 100% agree with that statement. When writing an IEP, we should be looking to see if providing services in a pull-out setting is what is least restrictive for the child. We shouldn't just automatically assume that the student will be pulled into a resource setting. But as special educators, we all know very well that resource room is the least restrictive environment for some students. And as resource teachers, we have to have a physical place to provide that service. We have to actually have a location to provide resource. It's really all just a play on words to check some box on an auditor's form. And I'm not arguing with them. I understand the reasoning behind it. But just so that we're clear, resource is the umbrella that covers inclusion and pull out. And so that is what I'm talking about when I say resource room. It's a service to a student outside of the general education classroom that is provided in an alternate location. So now that we have that all squared away, how does one go about setting up a resource room? Well, let me just start by saying that there is no wrong way to do this. You're going to want to set it up to meet your needs and your students' needs, and every resource room will look different from the others. But there are some components to a resource room that I feel should be included in all of them. Depending on the size of the room that is assigned to you, you may have larger areas which allow for some of the components to be on a larger scale or even incorporate some extra things, but even with a small room, these components are doable. The first is a teacher area. There are mixed feelings about this one. I know that some teachers feel that they want to give all of their space to the students and they don't have an actual desk. They might just use a drawer and a filing cabinet for their personal belongings and and that's fine if that's what you want to do or if you are doing it because you really just don't have the room for a teacher desk. But I like having a desk area where I can kind of separate myself from the rest of the room for when I need to write IEPs. And I think the majority of teachers have some sort of desk in their room. Being able to decorate my area with awards I've won or pictures of my kids and dogs and little drawings that students have made me throughout the years makes me happy, and I like to be happy. So that's why I have a desk area. One thing you should remember is to keep your desk facing the students. Don't position it where your back is to them. And I like to keep that area blocked off from students just so that they aren't getting into my personal things. I tape it off with colored painter's tape and teach the students not to cross the line. They don't always follow that rule, but for the most part, they stay away. I know I have seen some teachers who have like a baby gate or a dog gate set up to keep students away from that area, so it's really just whatever works for you. The second is to have a designated space for your paraprofessionals and their personal items. Resource teachers tend to have more paraprofessionals than a self-contained program because they provide the majority of inclusion services, so if you have just one or two paras assigned to work in your room, this may not be as difficult as a teacher who has 7, 10, 15 paras who are working within the same department. But I truly feel that they need to have a home where they can leave their things and have a sense of belonging. I saw a thread the other day where paras were being forced to take all of their things with them to their inclusion classes, including things like their coats and their purses. And that, to me, 
just sounded so sad. I, as a supervising teacher, it is it is my job to make my staff feel at home. And that involves giving them some type of space to leave their things. Now, I know space can be limited in some buildings, which means that there might not be room for an extra desk, and that's fine. There are so many other options besides having them drag everything with them throughout the building. In the past, I have used old desks, student desks, filing cabinet drawers, closet spaces, underneath my desk area, and I'm sure that I'm forgetting some that I've used throughout the years, but currently we are housed out of a spare kindergarten room, so we have cubbies. Each para is assigned a cubby where they can hang their coat, leave their purse, keep their handbooks, and hang up any artwork that children have made for them. And it's worked out well. Whatever it is, and however it is you, that you facilitate this, just make sure that your paras feel like they belong. The next component to setting up a resource room is to have some kind of teacher table area. Many teachers, including general education teachers, use a kidney table where the teacher can sit on the inside of the table and five to six students can sit around the outside. I've never had a kidney table and I've never asked for one because I found that other setups have worked just as well for me. For example, if I'm working with just one student, I want to be right next to them. If I have two, I position myself between them. If I have three or more students, I have them all working at one larger table or two smaller ones. Or if I've had desks in my room, I will pull three or four desks together to make a table space. However you design it will be based on what furniture you have available to you. But a resource room is used for instruction, so make sure that you have a place to instruct small groups of students. You'll want to position your teaching space in front of a whiteboard, or I guess a chalkboard. Do do people even have chalkboards anymore? I'm not sure. But if those things aren't available, you're going to need some type of easel to write on when you're giving instruction. Some of the other things that you're going to need for your instructional area might include a chair for yourself instead of just sitting in in a regular student chair and chairs for other adults who might be assisting you. You're going to need student seating, and that can be regular seating or flexible seating like wobble stools, a caddy to hold student supplies. You're going to need shelves, some type of shelving or plastic drawers for teaching materials, dry erase boards and markers for each student, and then you might want some type of folders or cardboard presentation boards to use as dividers between students when they are assessing. Some other tips and ideas that I consider when setting up my small group instructional area is that the teacher table should face the rest of the classroom so that you can monitor other students who might be working independently or with a teaching assistant, which then means that the students who are seated with you would have their backs to the rest of the class so that there is minimal distraction during lessons. You're also going to want to have extra pencils on hand and a pencil sharpener tissues available so that kids don't need to get up and leave the area during instruction. You might also want to keep a small trash can under the table just for disposing of scraps or tissues while the students are working. If you have other adults who are working within your rooms, so say Title I teachers or an OT or a PT, um, student teachers, parent volunteers, whatever it is, you, you might want to consider having more than one area set up for small group work. And that leads us into the fourth component. This one kind of goes along with the instructional setup, but it's for the rest of the room. While you are working with a small group of students, it is not unlikely that you 
could have one or more students who are working independently on an activity or with a paraprofessional slash teaching assistant. And when planning for this, you need to look at your schedule, which is what we're going to be discussing in the next episode, and figure out how many independent work systems you need to have running at one time. Then in your room, locate the spots that will continue to give you direct eyeline to the students who will be working without your direct instruction. You also want to limit distractions in those areas, so you're not going to want to put them by the door or in high traffic areas. And I would recommend having the tables or desks facing the wall rather than having the student facing out into the room, again, to minimize distractions. One of the most important things you can do for yourself, your paras, and your students is to teach routines and procedures for these areas. What does it look like when the teacher is doing a small group lesson? Should you ask the teacher for help or should you go to the paraprofessional? What do you do when you get done with your work? What are the options? By setting all of these things up in advance, you'll save yourself a lot of headaches. The next component is walls that teach. This could be anchor charts, a strategy wall, word walls, etc. And there are some rules that should be followed when you put things on your walls. First of all, Whatever you put on your walls should be should always be connected to student learning and it should be used. Don't just throw a poster up for converting liquid measurements because you are a math teacher. Make them meaningful, refer to them often, and let the students help you create them. One tip I use for my word walls is to make the words a different color. This could be a different color for each subject, which I've done in the past when I was just teaching one grade level, but now... I change out the color for each grade level, like all of my fifth graders' content is in pink, all of my fourth grade content is in turquoise, and all of my third grade content is in yellow. Number six is a sensory space. If you are one of the lucky ones and have a dedicated sensory room where your students can go throughout the day to address sensory concerns, then congratulations. But the majority of teachers don't have such a space and therefore have to make do with the space they have in their classrooms. Wherever it is for you, just make sure that you have a space where students can go to get the wiggles out, get sensory input, take a break from sensory overload, or just chill for a little bit. Basically, this is an area that provides a child with what they need in the moment. This area should be calming, comfy, and have several different sensory toys and as many types of input as you can fit into your space. If you have a really small space, you may just have room for a couple of pillows and a tub of fidgets. If you have a larger space, you might have a rocking chair or a sit and spin or a shelf full of sensory toys and activities. This is one area that I didn't really know I was missing for a long time, but now it is a must-have in my classroom. If you aren't sure what sensory input your student is seeking or trying to escape, you can complete a sensory diet on them. A sensory diet has nothing to do with food, but it's just a whole bunch of questions about what a child likes, dislikes, prefers, has meltdowns over, etc. And once all of those questions are answered, it gives you a personalized daily schedule of sensory-enriched activities, equipment, and strategies used to help a child feel calm, stay alert, and be organized throughout the day. I have a sensory diet that I created for my Teachers Pay Teacher store, and I'll link it in the show notes if you want to look into doing a sensory diet with one of your kids. The last component that I have for a resource room is to have a calm down corner. And this is similar to a timeout corner, but it's not. 
this one is for those times in a special education room when there is a meltdown for whatever reason. If it's possible for a paraprofessional or for yourself to take the child out of the room to calm down, that would be the best so that they don't have an audience. But if that's not possible, make sure you have an area that is away from the action of the classroom where the child can just go to collect themselves. Hopefully do some self-regulation and then be ready to come back to the group to work. So those are the seven components to a resource room that I feel are must-haves, but there are a few others that really should be considered if you have the need and or the space, and I think that they at least deserve an honorable mention. The first is task tubs. Essentially, task boxes are activities aligned to a student's learning and transition goals that are neatly packed into some type of bin. Each bin has a label that the student will eventually be able to use to find their own work box by following a mini schedule created for each individual child. The next is a classroom library, and this is just something that you can build as you teach. Find books at garage sales or friends who have kids that are older than yours. I always see those awesome classroom libraries with the colored bins that are just so organized and cute, and I wish I had that, but my bookshelves full of books have served me just as well. And the last honorable mention is a free play area. This is most important for you if you teach lower grades, but you would be surprised how many of my fourth and fifth graders are drawn to the play kitchen. Allowing students of all ages to have some time to engage in free play will increase social and emotional skills build further cognition, teach cooperative learning skills, and it just helps with attention concerns. And there you have it, my plan for what to incorporate into a resource room. Like I said in the beginning, no two resource rooms will look the same. Your room will look different from mine, and mine will look different from someone else in my district, and that's okay. But these components can at least give you a starting point to building a productive resource program. Now, I'm sure I've forgotten something, so if you think of something that I left out, I'd love for you to email me at jennifer at spedprepacademy and chat with me about it. I love learning from others just as much as I love teaching. Thank you for sticking with me until the end. I can tell just by listening to this show that you are just as dedicated to the field of special education as I am, and you want to grow into an amazing educator, and I'm here for it. I'm here for you, and I am so thrilled to be able to share all of my wisdom of being a veteran SPED teacher on the SPED Prep Academy podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and want to share it with friends, go ahead and screenshot an image of your favorite episode and tag me on Instagram. You can also subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. They give an instant boost to my ego, and they help others find the podcast as well. And then make sure you're following me on Instagram. I love to use that platform to add a little humor to our crazy days, as well as to provide you with motivation to get through the tough days, training on all sorts of topics that we need to know, and just overall support for what you do. You can find me on Instagram at Sped Prep Academy, and I've recently got into making some reels. They are way out of my comfort zone, but they are so fun to make. So make sure you check that out. If you liked what you heard today and realized you have found your SPED soulmate, please subscribe and then head over to spedprepacademy.com slash podcast to check out the show notes and sign up to be notified each time a new episode airs. Go out and have an amazing day and I'll catch you on the next episode.